Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. Well, thank you for joining us this morning here at Holmes Avenue. I'm grateful that you're here on this, what feels like a warm spring day, right? My wife saw 57 on the uh, temperature this morning and panicked and put me in a sweater. And as you can see, it was not necessary. (laughs) So I'm glad you guys are here. I'm grateful you choose to worship with us today. Do you want to make a note that if you are led to give today, you're able to give in a variety of ways. You can give online, you can give via text, you can give as you exit if you're old-fashioned, right? variety of ways you can give. I want to encourage you to give and join in on the mission that God has called us to here at Holmes Avenue. Today we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16 verses 11 through 24. We're going to be looking at the gospel's power. Power is a funny thing. Uh, This week my sister-in-law had some car trouble and if you've ever had car trouble you just think when will it end right? When is it going to be fixed? You know, she's driving back from our house, and she gets about a mile away, and the car just stops, cuts off. She pulls over to the side of the road, and we've all had that happen before, right? And the worst thing is she's been driving for all of two weeks on her own with a license, so you can imagine the terror and the panic she's feeling. So she calls my father-in-law, and they get cranked, and she comes back to the house. And like anybody who, who knows very little about cars, I say, well, let me take a look at it before my father-in-law gets here. We'll, we'll figure it out. It's okay. She's upset. She's distraught. And we get to look at the car. And if you know anything about cars, when it cuts off like that, there are a couple of different things it could be. My immediate thoughts, hey, battery or alternator, right? If you're not a car person, just track with me for a minute, okay? You'll see where we're going. I checked the battery, battery tests good, and I said, well, there's a couple of things it could be, but it's probably the alternator, right? It's not charging, not putting off power. The alternator is the part of your engine that when your car is running, it's supplying power to the car. If your alternator's not working, your car's not going to go very far, right? And so that's our suggestion. That's what I think it is. My father-in-law comes, checks behind me and says, yeah, that sounds like it's probably it. Replace the alternator. What do you know? It's good as new now, right? The car is working, though it still hasn't left my driveway and we need a conversation about that. But the car is working. It lives. It moves. Now, beyond getting you an intro to Automotives 101, what is the point of that? A car cannot go very far without power, right? I mean, it's a simple concept. Your car will not go very far without power. You and I will not go very far without power, right? If we're not eating and drinking and getting rest, the things that charge us up, that fuel us, we will not go very far without power. Well, what happens when we go without power? We stop. We become stagnant. We get stuck on the side of the road and we can't go any further. What does this have to do with the book of Acts? What does this have to do with a missionary journey? Frankly, you're probably even wondering, Walter, have you lost your mind? What does this have to do with our church? I would submit to you that when we lose sight of the gospel's power and prioritize other things in our lives, we lose our power to do ministry. As we look around and we wrestle with things that ail our church and our own individual lives, we worry about things like, are there enough people attending? We worry about things of, is the roof going to be taken care of? Is this material needs going to be provided? We worry about things in our own lives as I'm getting fed. Am I in the right place? Is this going to be a family for me? And I would submit to you that our problems with those things are going to be answered not by getting our needs met, 
not by inviting people to church, but by ultimately submitting to the power of the gospel. Those things are resolved only by the power of the gospel. And so I believe as we look here in the book of Acts, as we study Paul's second missionary journey, Paul is a man who is captivated by the power of the gospel. Paul is a man whose entire ministry and his life is defined by the power of the gospel. I believe we see that on full display here in the text today. We see the power of the gospel and what it does in the life of Paul and in the lives of others. I believe we see here in this book what the power of the gospel can do in our lives and in our church. Now, it is a little bit of a longer passage today, so I won't read from it up front. I'll read in sections to save your legs for later, right? But I want to jump into it with our first point here. You see, our first point that we want to begin to look at is that the gospel's power when proclaimed the gospel's power when proclaimed. We're going to see what that does. What is the power of the gospel when it's proclaimed? We get into chapter 16, verse 11. Read with me. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So I want to hit the brakes right there and catch up on where we're going, right? We jumped back into the book of Acts last week, and we started with chapters 15 and 16. And in this, we've just begun the second missionary journey. If you remember, Paul's beginning his second missionary journey. He and Barnabas have some conflict, have a falling out. Barnabas goes his own way. Paul takes Silas and Luke, and they go their separate way. And on this journey, they encounter Timothy and Lystra, and he joins them in this missionary endeavor. And they began to seek to do ministry in the area of Lystra, that is kind of Central Asia, think Turkey area. And they begin to try to do ministry, yet God prevents them from doing ministry. He prevents them from going further. Well, why? That sounds silly, right? Well, the reason is, is because they were needed in Macedonia. Paul has this village of a Macedonian man that tells him to come to Macedonia. And so Paul, being trusting in the Spirit, trusting in the work of God, says, Hey guys, I think we should go to Macedonia. And so they head off to follow God's call. They set sail from Troas, which is the closest port to them in Asia, to head over to Philippi. And this journey takes about two to three days for them to get there and you need to know a little bit about Philippi, right? This is a unique area that Paul's going in to do ministry. Philippi is an ancient city. It's been around for centuries at this point. It's been a part of the Roman Empire for about 200 years or so. Lots of history in that. You don't really need to know about that. But what you do need to know is this. This is a place that has a very strong Roman culture. This is possibly, in what we see in Paul's missionary journeys so far, this is probably the place where it's the most Roman in his encounters. What that means is that the Roman culture is stronger than any other culture in that area. That they view themselves as Romans, not Jews, not Greeks, not anything. They're Romans. That's important for us as we get into this because that means that Paul and his team, they're going to face an uphill battle against a culture that is hostile to their beliefs. They're going to face an uphill battle against a group of people who could not care less about what they have to say. They're going to face an uphill battle against people who are hostile to the very things that they're proclaiming. 
this idea of equality before Christ. We're all equal because we're all sinners and we're all in need of a savior. That's anathema to the Roman culture. This idea of salvation coming from this God-man. Well, there's only one God-man in Roman culture and that's the emperor. You can see that they're on a collision course for some real hostilities here in this area. Well, let's see what happens. We have verse 13 here, if you'll read with me. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So right off the bat, they begin to follow the standard pattern that Paul's established for his ministry. When he goes into a town, into a city, and he's seeking to begin proclaiming the gospel, he always begins in the synagogue. He always starts where the Jewish people are to begin sharing this good news of the gospel. Now here in Philippi, there doesn't seem to be a synagogue. There's not a place here for them to go. Why is that? Well, Jewish tradition holds that there have to be at least 10 men who are the heads of household in a city before a synagogue can be formed. That's important because I want you to see in every other place that Paul has gone, there's been a strong presence of Jewish people who have some understanding of what Paul's talking about. As he's weaving the story of who Jesus is and what he's done together from the Old Testament, they're able to make some connecting dots and go, oh, this is the Messiah you're talking about. This is the guy that you've been pointing us to. He doesn't have that here. He's got a group of people. He's got a number of women here that we see talked about, but he doesn't have a large group of Jewish people like he has in every other city. Now, a part of that command is in Jewish tradition, if you don't have a synagogue, what are you supposed to do? You're still supposed to worship. Well, they're actually commanded within Jewish tradition, they actually go to the closest body of water outdoors and they worship by a river or by the sea, right? That's where they go. They gather together and they worship and pray. So this is where Paul goes with his group of men to go share the good news of Jesus. And as he gets there, something happens. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Tyratia, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here we get to a pretty significant moment. We meet Lydia. Lydia takes a significant role in Paul's ministry through the New Testament. We'll see more about her later on within these passages. But Lydia is a Gentile. She's what's described as a God-fearer. So she believes within the Jewish religious system. She walks within the appropriate patterns of life as a good Jewish believer should. But she's a Gentile. She knows there's a God. She's just not been born to the right group of people, or so they would say. We don't know a whole lot about her other than she is a seller of purple goods and That may mean nothing to you, but as we study this and look at the history that we see here, this seller of a purple good, this means that she's probably pretty wealthy. She's doing quite well financially. We know that based upon just our historical data and research, right? Purple dyed goods are extremely expensive in this era. I mean, they're they're incredibly expensive. And for you to not only be able to buy into that business and work in it, that means you have money to begin with. 
The reality is, we look at this, this idea of purple, that's so often in this culture and era associated with what group of people? Royalty, the wealthy. You're selling your goods to kings and queens. Of course, you're going to make them pay, right? She is probably a very wealthy woman just based on that. And we think that's significant because she may have been someone who funded Paul's missionary efforts from here forward. That's just a fun note. You'll encounter Lydia again in the text, but I just want you to know a little bit about her and the significance of this moment. Now, what's the important thing here? Not that she's wealthy, not that she's a seller of purple, not that she's a woman. None of those things are important. The key thing that's important is this. As Paul is speaking, the Lord opens her heart to listen to Paul. As Paul is speaking, the Lord opens her heart so that she would listen to his words, truly listen to his words. You see, she trusts in Jesus here, and she invites Paul to share this good news with her household. Her, her oikos is the Greek word here. That word oikos is simply meaning household or a group of people that you have a relationship or responsibility with. She's essentially saying, hey, Paul, here are the people that I know, the most important people in my life. Would you tell them this good news? Well, they hear it, and they trust and believe, and they all follow through in baptism. It's a beautiful moment of celebrating the gospel's power when proclaimed. Here's where we're getting to the real meat of our time here. See, right here, we've seen the evidence of the gospel's power in proclamation. Paul shares about who Jesus is, and the Spirit does the work of changing hearts and minds. This is important for us to understand because when we wrestle with evangelism, we have to understand that we are not the ones who are going to change people. Ultimately, it is God who does that work. If we wrestle with evangelism, we think about this idea. Evangelism, frankly, is kind of a scary thing, isn't it? If we're just being honest, when we enter into evangelism thinking that everything rests upon me getting the words right, everything rests upon me expressing it in the right way, everything's resting upon me to just get it right so that someone comes to faith, that sounds pretty terrifying, doesn't it? I mean, if we're honest, that's horrifying. We think that's the scariest thing we could possibly do. That someone's eternal destiny is resting on a fact of, can I remember the verse? Am I going to stutter? Am I going to throw up? Like, is it going to be that terrible? But that's not how Luke portrays it here. You see, I want to be clear that we should strive to be faithful in our words, that yes, we should seek to be winsome and engaging, right? If you can you know, not be sick in front of them, that's a really good piece of advice, right? But here's the reality. The power to change hearts and minds does not rest in our words or in our works. It rests in the hands of God. Luke, who's the one writing these verses, he's drawing our attention here to the work of God, not the work of Paul. I want to make sure you heard that and put the pen down if you're taking notes because I need you to catch this. Luke is drawing our attention not to the works of Paul, but to the work of God here. This is a significant moment for us. Paul, we put him on a pedestal because he's an incredible man, right? We read the epistles, we read the book of Acts, and we go, man, if I could be like Paul, I would be somebody, right? And that's true. Yet... Paul was only incredible. 
He was only memorable. He was only honorable because the Lord went before him, working and moving. If the Lord was not working before Paul, we would not remember his name. That's the truth. And simply put, Paul would tell us that at the end of the day, he doesn't want you to remember his name. He wants you to remember the name of Jesus. These men who've come here to share the good news of what Jesus has done in this city, they have every confidence that God is working and moving, that he's living and active. They trust that he's called them here to this place for a purpose. And if he has brought them here in this time, in this place, in this moment, then he will fulfill all that he intends to fulfill here. Isn't this a freeing thing? Isn't this freeing to consider this reality that God's work in this world doesn't depend upon us getting everything right? Rather, it depends upon us being faithful to simply work. Isn't that freeing to know that I'm not powerful enough to screw up God's story? That there's nothing I can do to mess up God's plan in this world because it's his plan in his world. And if he wants something to happen, he will work it out himself. Can you just feel the, the pressure relieving when you consider that thought? That it's God's plan and his will and his work? I'm just running his playbook. I'm just doing what he tells me. It's a beautiful thing. It's freeing. Someone who believed that just within our own Baptist heritage is a man named William Carey. He was a Baptist missionary to India and this man is often referred to as the father of modern missions. Incredible man. I encourage you to read some of his works. But he's got a quote for us that I think is relevant, something I believe Paul would believe in. His quote is, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. I want you to write that down. I want you to pay attention to it. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. I'm going to ask a question that I intend to be a, a challenge for us. This one's not going to be easy. And so if you feel uncomfortable when I ask this, then we're doing what we should, right? This is the right place to be. Do we really expect great things from God if we're not willing to pursue great things for him? Do we really believe that statement? If we're not willing to attempt things that only God can do, do we really believe he can do great things? It's a hard question, isn't it? You see, the greatest thing that we can attempt for God, the greatest thing that we can do for him is that we can join in with his mission to tell people about Jesus. Simply put, it's not about pursuing a larger audience or group of people worshiping with us on a Sunday. It's not to get them to give and to join our church. It's not to do anything for our gain. It is simply to proclaim the good news that there is a risen Savior. You see, we live our lives within our church world, and this is us as people, is we view this idea as the church has a mission, right? We say the church is the engine that fuels everything, and the mission is the road we run on. This is what God has put in place, right? And we're on this journey. But did you know that's wrong? It is not that the church has a mission. 
It's that the mission has a church. God's plan wasn't to establish the church. His plan was to establish his mission to reach every man, woman, and child with the gospel. I'm not saying that the church, the body of Christ, is not important, but the church is merely a means to the end of reaching people with the gospel. We know that because we go back into the Old Testament where the church was not established, the church was not formed. And what did God say in Genesis 3? That one day he was going to crush Satan's head. That he was going to send a savior to come redeem his people. I didn't see the church building set up then. I missed that in Genesis 1 through 3. God's plan is not to establish a church, but to establish a people. So it is true that God has a church, but most importantly, more importantly, God has a mission. Our mission is to simply tell people about King Jesus and what he's done in our lives. This is the greatest thing that we could ever attempt for God, to simply pursue God's power and proclamation by proclaiming the gospel, not for any hopes or gains on our end, simply to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Last night, I had the privilege of being at the Harvest Festival and interacting with people. And let me tell you, it was a lot of fun seeing kids dressed up, giving out candy. You know, I get to be that guy. Hey, you grab an extra piece, kid. It's all right. <laughs> you know, the, those are good, fun moments. I got the opportunity to encourage people, to celebrate with them, to have fun with them, and to share what God's doing in my own life. Here's the reality of it. Those people that I interacted with may never darken our doors. Yet many of them had an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus. Because I personally shared the good news of the gospel with them. I shared the testimony of what the Lord has done in my life. I challenged them by simply asking as I shared those things, do you have a story like this? Those people may never come to our church, but they have heard the gospel of Jesus. And so I submit to you this reality that if we pursue the edification, the glory of our church above the mission, we will fail. But if we pursue the mission of God, seeking to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus to those who are around us, then we will succeed. The only way we can see our church grow and thrive is we join in the mission that God has given us. If we are clear and serious that our existence, our purpose is centered around what? Jesus and his name. Jesus and his name alone. And so I ask you, are you on mission for King Jesus? Have you joined in? Are you on board with what he's calling you to do? We're going to see in a few moments that when the gospel's at work, it begins to change things. And one of the greatest enemies of the gospel of the mission of Jesus is comfort. We're going to see that in the next few minutes because we already see the gospel's power at work in proclamation. Paul and his team were rejoicing over this blessing. People have come to faith. This is a good thing. But they really didn't have any idea about what else they were going to encounter. You see, here in the next few verses, we encounter 
evil. And we get to see the gospel's power over evil. Look with me at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So some time has passed. They're going back to this place of prayer to worship, to celebrate. And they encounter this slave girl who the passage describes as being possessed by a spirit. The Greek for this really refers to it as that she was held by this spirit. She was captivated by this spirit. She was entrapped by this spirit. And rather than seek help for this girl, these owners of her, these slave owners, they decided to use her for their own game. You know, she's like that little carnival game at the, uh, the fair. You pull her arm, right, and she spits out a fortune. You got to pay first, of course, right? It says that she's working as a fortune teller for her owners, that she's simply there to enrich them. They see this, this young girl who's perhaps, as we see the idea of demonic possession described in Scripture, it's not a pleasant sight, and they're using her for, her own, for their own gain. Well, what's that got to do with our heroes of the story, so to speak? Well, verse 17 shows us how she comes into the picture. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So we see in verse 17 that she's starting to follow Paul and his team around town. And she's proclaiming this message that they serve the most high God. Now, we might think that's actually an okay thing, right? Like she's, she's telling the truth, right? I mean, it's okay. She's walking around proclaiming that these men, they serve the most high God. Yet Paul rebukes her. And cast this demon out. Why? You see, Paul understands something here about the work of Satan. He sees something very clearly about the work of Satan and his forces. Satan is an enemy. Satan is the exact opposite of what we can picture God as. He is evil. He is unrighteous. He is unholy. I mean, everything you can picture in there, right? Satan is actively trying to derail the work of God here by seemingly forming an alliance with these men. Everyone that sees, sees this girl, everybody that encounters her, she's being used by Satan. As we study scripture, people are pretty, they know, they see that. The ancient world was sensitive to these things. They're aware of these realities. They see that she's being used by Satan and they go, but she is working with Paul. See, Paul decided this was a problem because he doesn't want the work of the gospel, the good name of Jesus to be associated with anything unclean, anything evil. He says, we're not going to have this. And so he commands the spirit to leave the girl immediately, and it does. Now, this is a good thing for the gospel. This is a good thing for Paul and his team. This is a good thing for this girl. She's now free. But this brings opposition Satan is not done working his way, his will in his world. Verse 19 comes up and we are in the middle of conflict and what we can describe as persecution. Look at verses 19 through 23. 
But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought these men to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. We see in verse 19 that Paul has immediately touched these men's hearts. Unfortunately, the problem is their hearts are located in their wallets. And so now they've got a real problem. These men, in their selfishness, they are angry. Their their livelihood is gone. Never mind this poor girl has been tormented for however long. They grab Paul and Silas and they begin to drag them before the rulers, the magistrates. These are the Roman authorities, the people who are in charge of this city. They drag them through the marketplace to these guys and they put them in front of them and say, can you believe what these fools have done? You'll notice that it only references Paul and Silas. Um, We believe that Luke and Timothy are not mentioned here because they were able to get out of this because they were Gentiles. These men saw these Jewish men and said, these guys are the problems. Oh, by the way, those Gentiles that are with them, they're not the issue. It's the Jewish guys. Let's drag them before the Roman authorities. We suspect that's probably true because when they get there, the first thing out of the slave owner's mouth is to condemn Paul and Cyrus because of what? Because of their race and their beliefs. I don't want you to miss how quickly Satan changes his tactics here to try and push the gospel off its work. Right? We were coming off of this beautiful moment of rejoicing, of celebrating this this household of Lydia has become believers. They've been baptized. The church has been birthed in Philippi. Paul and his team are doing great work. The Spirit of God is moving and working, and they encounter opposition. Satan tries to do this sneaky way in to disrupt them, and well, it doesn't work, so he's moved from sneakiness to full-on persecution, right? He's got to do something blatant in his face to try and end the work of God in this place. The slave owners and their sinfulness take it hook, line, and sinker. Their sin leads them to this, and they're simply trying to play off of some Roman cultural issues here. They're pushing on racial prejudice. The Roman people are people who view themselves as pure and upright, and there's a certain group of people that are Romans, and no one else is supposed to be a Roman. They're playing off of these racial prejudices they have. They're claiming disorderly contact to, to a Roman citizen. The thing that defines citizenship is order and law and uprightness and propriety, at least in public. Behind closed doors, you can do whatever you need to. But in public, you're upright and you're honest. Well, they're claiming disorderly contact. So now, wow, these guys are disrupting our nice, perfect life. They're even saying these men are teaching customs contrary to Roman culture and authorities. That's what they were referencing. Hey, they're telling us to live and act in a certain way that's against what the Roman powers would have us be. Well, we recognize these charges simply just weren't valid. I mean, to be fair, the last one was, right? If they're telling people to follow Jesus, they're saying to live in a way that's contrary to what the culture says. So that one's probably true. But it's not a punishable crime within the Roman Empire anyway. But that's, I'll get off my soapbox. Regardless of whether they're true or not, 
They've accomplished their goal. This appeal to Roman pride, it works, and the crowd moves against Paul and Silas. They beat them. The magistrates join in and strip them of their clothes and beat them with rods. I mean, they are getting punished. Satan's work has led to this dark moment in verse 23. They've been thrown into prison. This language here in 23, it really echoes some of the things we see and feel as we look at Jesus' last day, right? As he's beaten and scourged, as he's led away from his companions, as he's enduring this alone, as he goes to the crucifixion, dying a brutal death, you can feel some similarities there. It feels hopeless. It feels like things aren't going to be good. Yet, Even in the midst of this, hope is not lost. Even within this darkness that Satan intended for evil, good comes from this moment. Look with me at verse 24. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So they're thrown into prison in the deepest, darkest, most secure part. This is the inner prison. So there's rooms around this, and then there's walls around that. And so they're in the very inner part of the prison, the most secure place they can find. They've been chained up by their feet up against the wall. They are stuck. They're not pulling away. They're not getting away. They are here, and they are trapped. They're under guard. They've got jailers. I mean, they are being watched. And frankly, when we get to this verse, it simply looks like the story is over. Evil has won. Until you get to verse 25. I don't want to get too far ahead, but I want you just to look at this next verse. And Pastor Brian's going to preach this verse and the rest of it next week. But I want you to see this. After midnight, Paul and Silas were what? Weeping and gnashing? Were moaning and sobbing? Were distraught and broken? No, what does it say? That they were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Does this sound like men who have lost? Does this sound like men who are broken by the work of Satan and feel powerless? No. You see, they've trusted in this fact that God is in control, that he's called them to this ministry for a purpose. These other prisoners who are listening to these men singing, they hear hope, they hear joy, they hear peace. They're probably confused why these men are rejoicing in this situation, even though all seems lost. You see, Satan meant this for good, but God meant it. Satan meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. I believe that Paul is resting in what we find in Ephesians 3.20. You'll see it on the screen. That to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Paul recognizes something here. He simply assents to this reality that just as William Carey believed that if we're going to expect great things from God, we must attempt great things for God. He believes that God can do great things. His hope is resting upon the fact that he has seen God do great things. He rests in this jail cell with confidence, with assurance that even though he is in a difficult situation, let's make no bones about it, 
he's in prison, he believes that God will still be on the throne come the morning. He believes that Jesus will still be king when the sun rises. He knows with confidence that no matter where he goes from this moment forward, he knows who holds his future, and it is Jesus. I think it's significant that Paul feels this way, that he rests in this. Because he's in a moment of extreme discomfort, right? If you remember earlier when I said that the enemy of the gospel's power is comfort, Paul is in an uncomfortable situation. And if he had chosen comfort earlier and not challenged this slave girl, where would he be? He'd be comfortable. Yet the gospel's power may have ceased. Are you comfortable or are you powerful? Because those are mutually exclusive. If you want to feel the full power and presence of the gospel in your life, you must be uncomfortable. If you want to live a life of weakness and powerlessness, then be comfortable. This is not a situation where we can have our cake and eat it. We must choose one or the other. Paul's choice is clear. He chose power. Not his power, because he had none. He's chained to a wall. Not Silas's power, because he's chained to a wall with them. Not the power of Luke and Timothy, because they're writing about this out in the prison, drinking American chinos. Like, they're like, ah, he's fine. God's got him. No, they trusted in the power that God has through the gospel. This is why the enemy of the gospel's power is comfort. We encounter evil. Do we give in or do we stand firm on how God has called us to live? Today, I invite you to choose. Will you choose to pursue the power of the gospel or will you choose comfort? Will you choose uncomfortable situations? Will you choose challenging moments? Will you choose difficulty for the sake of the good news? For the power of the gospel to go forth to change hearts and minds? Or will you choose comfort? Will you choose solitude, silence, peace? If you're here and you're a follower of Christ, your choice is between those two. You can choose power or you can choose comfort. And I simply ask you, what is your choice? To lay my cards on the table, my hope and my prayer is that your choice would be to choose the power of the gospel. Embracing difficulty, discomfort, awkwardness, and challenges. Because the fruit of that, the fruit of that is good. The fruit of that is beautiful. The fruit of that is everything we want and dream of for ourselves, for our church, for our world. Comfort gives us what we want in the moment, but robs us of our future. Which will you choose? Maybe you're here and you're saying, Walter, this is all great, but I'm not a Christian. You too have the power to choose. You can choose the power of the gospel or you can choose comfort. 
You can choose the power of the gospel to redeem you, to save your soul, or you can stay comfortable in the life you've lived, trapped in sin and bondage, ashamed of your behavior, looking back on your wickedness, thinking, where else can I go? But by choosing the gospel, by choosing the power of the good news, you can have life, hope, and forgiveness. This power was Paul's hope. It was William Carey's hope. It is my hope. Is it your hope? Here in the next few moments, you have an opportunity to decide. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I'll begin to pray for us and our worship team will lead us in singing of the victory in Jesus. My hope and my prayer is that you're singing of this victory of Jesus as a follower of Christ who has chosen to pursue gospel power, who's embraced difficulty for the good, for the joy that lies before them. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we come to you as humble people. As humble people wanting to see you move and work in our lives and our world. We come laying it all down before you, resting, trusting in you to finish what you started. Father, as we come to you, we have a choice. We can choose challenges and difficulty. We can choose distress We can choose hardship and receive power from you working in us and through us. Or we can choose comfort, an easy life. We won't have distress or difficulty. We'll just have a life. Father, it is my hope and prayer that we would choose the challenges. We would choose to embrace the hardships and the difficulty that we would look to you to receive power through the gospel so that our hearts and minds might be transformed and so that we might have the ability to proclaim the good news to people who are lost and dying. Father, our existence is not for our own glory. It is not for our own purposes. We exist for you and your glory. And the thing that gives you most glory is that we would choose to live for you now by proclaiming your great gospel name, the name of Jesus, the only name by which we can be saved to a lost and dying world. So Father, it is my prayer that we would choose to proclaim your name. We would choose to do so by embracing your power and your authority, by embracing you and all the distress that may come, Lord, by trusting that you are greater than it all. Father, even those here who have not trusted in you, they have an opportunity to receive this power. My prayer is that their hearts would be open and receptive, just as Lydia's was. That the spirit that you, Lord, would speak to them, saying, listen to these words. And they would repent of their sin, receiving forgiveness, receiving this power that comes from salvation, Lord, to proclaim the good news 
so that people might see, hear, and respond to your great name. Father, it is our prayer that we would choose you. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.